Uh, ready? You have a throat cleared. I, I've been trying badly. <laughs> See a little early in the day for I a know. throat clear, isn't it? I know. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Andy Orion and alongside me is my co-host Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. <laughs> a little more enthusiasm. Hi, Andy. Thanks, Pippa. And today we are joined by Giles Brook. Giles is a renowned serial startup CEO, entrepreneur, and investor, and has been a leading factor behind the success of flagship brands such as Innocent, Bear, Vita, Coco, and Pippa Nut. Hello, Giles. Welcome to the podcast. How are right. you doing? Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Well, Good to be here. Absolute pleasure. Nice to see you. So we like to start with um, a question, which is, you know, what's keeping you up at night? What's keeping me up at night? Probably raising money at the moment is probably what's keeping me up at night at the moment. Majority of what I do is in early stage, fledging startups, predominantly in consumer goods, but a few things more tech-based. And the funding environment is pretty brutal. Um, And then you chuck in stuff like Silicon Valley, Stroke Credit Suisse and all that sort of stuff, and it becomes even more unstable. Do you think FMCG is harder than, well, I would say it's harder than tech, but is it harder than a lot of things to raise for? I mean, I think, look, food and drink for me is, if you go through, you know, all the challenges we've had globally, I think food and drink is typically about as resilient as you can get. And it's an industry I've been in all my life and I'm, I'm blessed that I'm in that industry compared to, you know, what I see. People some, need to eat. Exactly. And to see quite some, a fun industry too. It's full of quite fun it's people. Fun. It often. should be more fun. Do you know what? I, this is the whole thing for me. Just, I think it needs to be more fun, you mm. know? Going into retailers and getting beaten up to death. It's like, come on, guys, let's uh, just have a bit of fun. Tell me what you need, what I need, and let's just have a chat about it. You know. And who are you raising money for at the moment? Is there someone specific? Oh, various. So we've got a few bits and pieces going on. So I'm a non-exec on the Cheeky Panda, which is an eco household brand. So we're just raising on that at the moment. Really lovely young founder called Rachel on a brand called Fern and Rosie, which is Jam. Uh, we're actually already got the target amount. We're trying to overfund that at the moment. So that's been going. Ember, which is a meat snacking brand, we're just about to raise on that. Just closed around on pepper nut nut butter spread, so it's probably easy for me to answer it and say probably most of them. <laughs> so when, when, when you say you, what, what are you? Are you a, a one man army? Or are you? So I'm I'm a little bit of a eclectic mix of I do everything between. I'm lead investor on a number of businesses. I've got just over a dozen interests. I'm lead investor on most of those. On a couple of those, I'm like a non-exec or chairman. And then there's one or two businesses that I've started with somebody else and we've just put somebody in to run them. But I think I think you can't help yourself in terms of getting involved. I'm quite different, yeah. I'm like, you know, I hate being called a high net worth and stuff like that because, you know, I sold a business. Actually, Philippa helped on a transaction of one of the businesses that, that we sold, which was Urban Fresh Foods, which had the bear, which is the kids snacking brand. I mean, look, right, I am one of these people, I'm either a bit in a business or not in a business. I'm not a non-exec who's going to turn up to a meeting and try and say a couple of clever things and then disappear for three months. So if there's a problem with the manufacturer, I'll jump on a flight and I'll go and speak, see that manufacturer and try and help it with, you know, with, 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 with whatever the brand owner is. And it's because I enjoy what I do, right? And that's, that's my whole philosophy, which is I, only, you know, I do what I do because I really enjoy it. It's not about the monetary side at all, which some people will always smirk and laugh at. I do it because you know, I love doing it. And you know, also... I love upsetting the big corporates and the big FMCG brands with challenger startup, you know, kind of insurgent brands. And, you know, I'll always do it. And, you know, it's been my life, I guess, for the last, whatever it is, 28 years. Um, But I'm never going to retire because I just enjoy what I do. So how do you pick them? Is it about the product? Is it like, I really like this product, I'd buy it myself? It seems to be about the name so far. Yeah, yeah well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, no, it's the pretty packaging. No, it's, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's various things. I mean, you, you can kind of see macro trends and, you know, if you look before I got involved with, with Vitacoco and I was actually approached by Vitacoco, you know, 
I could see what was going on with coconut water in the US. And therefore, it made sense to do that, even though everybody thought I was absolutely mad. I, mean, I remember the Waitrose buyer literally saying, yeah, I'll list it, we'll put it in 180 stores or branches, as they call them. And the meeting stopped, and she just literally put a pad down and went, are you effing serious? What are you doing? You're going mad, look, you're with Innocent. What are you doing? You know, Coca buying them, stay where you are, what are you doing? And, wow. And, you know, yeah, that became one of the big success stories in beverages, and, you know, that business was floated on the NASDAQ. Well, I think it was the kind of the first sort of coconut water that people knew about in the UK. There were I'm other kind of weird because I've been drinking coconut water a long time and they used to only sell it in cans. Yeah. You'd buy these cans and then have lumps right. of coconut Which in it. Which is full of sugar, undeclared ingredients, sugar. yeah. There was a nice brand that came in a bottle that was quite a heavy bottle, like a might, glass might bottle. Might be Jack's, I think. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah, was really yeah. nice, but it kind of felt like it was really expensive. Yeah, and yeah. It was but like, I thought Vita Coco and all these things tasted great. My wife from Trinidad who grew up on real coconut, she spits it out. She's just oh, like, exactly. I mean, that, that was the biggest marketing conundrum because on Vita Coco, we actually, for those people who rejected it first time round, over 60% when we gave them a second taste would actually say, actually, I really like this now. So that was all about uh, how we got the second time. But also what we learned, and you know, Mike, was the, Mike who's one of the founders, and I laugh because we actually launched a, a, another iteration of, of, of the pure coconut water, but just adding a bit more puree in it. So it literally purely had a bit more flesh in it and it made it taste more like a pina colada. And Ooh, oh my God, yeah, pre- exactly. Went, went through the roof and we laughed and said, if we'd actually started with that one in the first place, you know, it would probably be double, treble the size of what it is today. You said that food and drink are one of the most resilient businesses. Is that because it's such a tough market in the UK or? Well, I think, I think it comes down to another things, which is there's always going to be a level of base demand that's never going to go away, right? And I think whereas people will stop buying certain things with food and drink, consumers typically go. So therefore, in just leaner and more difficult times, you've just got to basically ensure consumers see ongoing value or a reason to continue to buy. And actually, that's pretty, you know, right now, actually, COVID was very was, was very tough, but actually a lot of food and drink brands did incredibly well because guess what? There was a return to the traditional breakfast. People having evening meals back together again. So of course, mm. there was a lot more in-home consumption. So therefore, those brands which had what you call take-home or covered items did really well. But obviously, the the, the brands that only had like on-the-go impulse suffered because obviously people weren't commuting and stuff. It felt like um, a while ago when I was sort of looking at supermarkets that, that the supermarket's own brand was taken over and that there was this sort of sense people were getting scared. I remember that there was there was, there was was stuff in the press. It was like, you know, Heinz couldn't get tomato ketchup listed and stuff like this, you know. And you, is that changed now with private label? I think what you're actually seeing is actually typically private label's kind of been pretty stable, but actually in the last 12 to 18 months with obviously particularly you know, the economic climate at the moment, you're actually seeing a bit more of a resurgence on private label because a lot of consumers obviously trying to, you know, kind of limit spending in supermarkets. They're kind of down trading to, to, to private labels. So private labels, not cheaper though, is it? Uh, it typically will be. Yeah. Will it? Yeah. Their own brand? Yeah. It will. So private label. I thought that was sorry. the whole thing of the Private label is own brand. Oh, brand sorry, sorry. This is, this is uh, rubbish terminology, but yeah, so basically own label or private label is obviously cheaper. So some people on certain products are trading down at the moment. We're seeing that in the data. And just from somebody who's kind of a brand custodian, all I'm making sure with my various founders is that we're offering the right level, to, level of value at the moment that means that the consumers are staying with those brands and that's that's what we're doing. But it's, I mean, the other thing for me as well is that you talked a little bit about, you know, everybody being at the mercy of the supermarkets and also, you know, private label, you know, kind of dictating everything. One thing that really annoys me in the industry is the amount of founders I see who've got a significantly established business in the supermarkets, but yet will still bitch and moan about how the supermarkets treat them. And I just sit there and go, do you know what? 
you're lucky you got a business. You are so fortunate to be in the scale of those sort of businesses. They've made so many different people's businesses. Stop moaning about it. Get on with it. The course of the negotiation is going to be hard. These guys have got shareholders. They've got you know their own targets. They want to be the cheapest retailer in the UK. They are under massive pressure. Get your head around it and deal with it. Yeah, I feel the same. We had an argument recently because I feel that about the music industry is something I know a little bit about. And it's like, you know, people are always blaming their labels or spot. It's like, it's just the system. Yeah, as yeah. you say, it's vicious. I, I mean, look at what the supermarkets are dealing with. It's cutthroat. You it's know, it's, it's yeah. tiny margins and they've got to do what they've got to do. All of these brands that, you know, all of them I actually know, and a lot of them are household names, but it's that thing I was taught years back, This uh, when you go and buy something, you go into the shop and you say, I need some pasta. And then you go to the shelf of the pasta and then you pick it up and this emotional thing happens. And they actually, now they would study, you know, that it is the gut. It is this like whole, does this feel right? You know, is there something on the packaging which is very un-Italian or very, you know, that's suddenly putting me yeah. off? And your products have always, you know, you've always been involved in products that, you know, speak to you a lot. Like the moment you say bear, I can think of it, you know, it's also my nickname, but, you know. Is it? Yeah. yeah it's I won't ask why. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. Um, yeah, but, you know, when you're saying I can offer a bit more, I mean, a lot of it comes down to that, isn't it? That I'm just, I'm, I'm looking interesting yeah, visual, and I talk, visual, talk. Visual appeal is a big thing and I'm, people get involved in different brands. I've always kind of lend, tended to gravitate towards emotionally driven and emotionally connecting brands because I, I think products are not about delivering something that's great tasting. Products today are about delivering something that brings a wider experience. And one of the big things for me as well is I'm a big believer in vibrancy. So for example, you talked about Bear. If you look at something like Bio Me, which is a, a gut health brand, really strong Pantone colors, really mm. distinctive on the fixture. And, you know, really... Stand out. Of, yeah, consumers gravitate towards it. And, you know, that's what it's all about for me. I think people, a lot of people miss that is that you know, you can spend a fortune on marketing dollars, but first of all, get your packaging right and, you know, make it as appealing as possible on the fixture because that's worth more than spending a lot of money on a big marketing campaign. Is the UK, you know, starting to to make more of its own food? I mean, you know, we're obviously in this really weird Brexit moment, cut off Europe and, you know, Austra You know, back in the day, it all used to come from Australia and New Zealand and yeah. they've got their free trade and they're going to start putting it in, but... I have no sense of it, where, how much the UK produces or not. Well, this is, I don't know how you answer that question in a succinct way, but I think it's, we all aspire to basically be as self-sufficient and to nurture and, and, and to kind of provide products that are locally, regionally sourced, whatever in the UK, etc. And we try and do our utmost. The reality is that the strength of our economy, our workforce levels, our yield levels are somewhat behind other, you know, other countries. You know, whether we like it or not, other countries can manufacture and produce goods at a cheaper cost of goods, including bringing them in in through shipping into the UK than we can. And there's a fundamental issue there, something the government's never got its head around or addressed properly that it needs to be looked at. But the other way, you know, I look at this as well is that people just need to see business as being cyclical. And I think, for example, a number of my businesses, we actually have multiple manufacturing capability, both within the UK and outside of the UK, because, you know, if currency massively moves against us, or else, for example, you know, the shipping rates went from $1,800 up to as high as, you know, $18,000 last year. It means that if you've got, you know, a you know a manufacturing base which is both domestic and overseas. You can try and mitigate some of those fluctuations and variations as best as possible, and that's probably what you know. We talked about Vitacoco earlier. The number one reason why Vitacoco was successful for me was that because at one point you were telling supermarkets and U.S. retailers, etc., how many cases we're going to get because the demand was bigger than the supply. But the best thing that, that Vitacoco ever did was that we set up a whole global uh, manufacturing um, setup 
We worked with only the best manufacturers. We got exclusivity at those sites. And it meant that we had the flexibility to basically provide product from all around. So whether it was, you know, if, if the Asia was, you know, was, was affected by tsunamis or, or other climate issues or else the currencies, you know, had moved or, or you know, whatever You don't were. have to sign up to a minimum supply. Yeah, you did, you did. And we actually, we, we also invested a lot of money into those sites as well to help them because beforehand they weren't doing coconut water. We had to make modifications to production lines and we actually lent the money to do that. Um, okay. But that gave us... Flexibility is also a lot less costly than setting setting up your own manufacturer. That's mad. Cross border lending, you like literally yep. lending the money, yep. and then and they've all paid back, or you know. So yeah, some have paid back. Some is an ongoing agreement. They're all structured in a, in a slightly different way based on what was the right thing with the Pacific, you know, the Pacific manufacturing partner and whichever regional country it was in. But trying to build resilience, basically. Yeah, and that's it. And that flexibility, so that you can pivot when you need to. It's great to hear you're a lead investor. It's always hard to find the lead. And I imagine, you know, your name carries some weight. So it's sort of, it, you, you've got that unenviable job that occasionally you'll get it wrong and everyone will be like, you know, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you, have, is there a time recently you feel you've got it wrong or anything? Or um, I mean, look, <clears throat> I would say, depends how you look at it. Because like, let's just say I've got 12 investments, right? Because I go in at really early stage investments, sometimes concept only or else first raise oh, levels. Oh, you're going way go early. Really, really early. early. Like, oh, wow. there, there first aren't, there investor. Aren't, there aren't many of me around, actually, um, who, who do what I do. Most people like to see it get to a certain level and then, then come in. So, you know, for example, the Innocent Boys with Jam Jar. So <clears throat> I, I do that and, you know, people have a view that says, look, you only need one or two of those to be successful. But I've set myself a thing saying, look, of those 12, let's say, I want to see at least six come to fruition because that's personally what I think, you know, if I'm getting involved in the business and I look at the ones that I've gone into, I believe at least six of those can come, you know, to fruition. Now, I've been lucky so far because Bear, you know, Vida Coco has floated on the NASDAQ. So, Ken so Kensington, which is a US condiment brand, that sold. That's, that sold uh, Vita Coco was a British company, was it? But So, I set up the European division of Vita Coco, the parent company's in New York, Mike, Mike and Era. Yeah, he's the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers or someone, one of them is uh, involved. So Anthony Kadidis, yeah, was in, he came in alongside Madonna, Matthew McConaughey and all that sort of lot, yeah. I always love the ones that have celebrity yeah. investors because I've got a few clients who have celebrity investors yeah. and I, I can't pick them out of a lineup. I know, but here's the thing, right, is that the, we also had Rihanna as well and they all went and did the photo shoot with Rihanna on, on a Caribbean island. Guess who didn't get the invite? Yes. Didn't get the nod. <laughs> Me. No, no, no invite. Is EIS and SEIS, has that been you know, a big part of your, or helped a lot? Yeah, majority, majority of what I do is under EIS or SEIS. It's yeah. a good relief. Yeah, it's good. It works really well. You know, I think it's, it's, you know, particularly under current government, hopefully next government, it needs to continue because if those sort of schemes go, basically investors are going to not, uh, they're going to fall through, literally fall through the floor. My friend is obviously very keen on uh, the la Labour government, but if someone gets rid of SEIS... Or, Why I'm do you think Labour are going to get rid of SEIS? No, I, I don't think they not. are. I don't think, I think you'd be fucking bonkers. I know. You know? Yeah, these, these schemes are there for the right reasons. And uh, speaking as a lawyer, I really like them because because they're so attractive, there are a lot of rules. And if you get it wrong, you get it badly wrong. Yeah. And you need a lawyer to do it. So from my point of view, I'm like... <laughs> you love it. Is there any sort of good advice you'd, you'd give to someone if, well, I guess if, if they if they wanted to approach you or, you know, were, were trying to sort of, had a business they were starting, is there any sort of like top tip you'd give them? I mean, look, right, I have no issue with anybody reaching out to me. It's just about being succinct and just being really clear about what the opportunity is and what it looks like. And I can assess it really quickly. Um, I'm a big believer in persistence, but also if you're getting a if I say no to somebody, it means no, and I and to a lot of people. Mm. And I, I do, I do yeah, appreciate it, but yeah. we'll carry on and carry on and carry on and tell me what I've missed and stuff like that. And I don't always get it right. 
Um, but I'll always give people the time of day and quite often people approach me and I just say, I won't invest in it, but look, I'll jump on the call uh, with them and give them half an hour, 45 minutes of my time just to run through the business plan and stuff like that. And that's giving them a lot, actually. Yeah, do you know, it's just about being courteous because, you know, don't forget a few years back I was in their position doing what they're doing and stuff like that. So I've been there and it is, it is it, you know, it's, it's very hard. And I think the biggest thing I still see today, though, is I don't think people still put enough effort into you know, trying to make themselves look different and differentiated and why this is particularly good. And, you know, I've seen it so many times where a category is exploding and they'll come to me with a brand that's trying to surf on the back of a category. But I'm like, well, what is it about your specific product or brand that makes it different? And they just can't answer it strong enough. And I'm just like, I'm done. But the the number one reason I invest in people is, whilst obviously the product and the category is, you know, incredibly important, it's the founder. If I don't connect with the founder, I won't invest. It could be the best opportunity ever. And I won't, you know, I won't give any names, but something that's gone on for a meteoric rise in 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 the meat alternatives. And I'm really pleased that they've gone on. But there's I could not connect with that founder. And I was not interested. And they got really arsy because I wouldn't get involved with it and said, so, well, blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, and I said, well, part part of how you're acting is why I don't want to get involved I with it. I think I can guess which business this is, but I'll give it a go afterwards. There's certain people, people who are bright, very humble, listen a lot are really important to me. People who talk at me, you know, just cut across me, you know, tell me I'm wrong and what's right when they've asked me to come in to meet them and I'm just like, that just doesn't work for me. I think the, the other big thing I've learned as well, just, you know, talks about advice for, you know, business owners who are looking to raise money and look at partners is that also find a partner, investment partner who has a good balance of behaviours in both the good and bad times because that's what I've also learned as well. And if, you know, again, it's easy example for me to look, but if I look at Vitacoco, we had a main backer, which was Verlinvest, uh, which is the Stella Einhauser Bush family. And we had some amazing times at Vitacoca, but we also had some very stressful and challenging times with massive litigation, as I mentioned to you earlier. I always remember Eric, who was, you know, headed up the fund at the time, and he came in, and, you know, and literally that meeting, everybody was literally ashen face, and he said, look, it's really simple, right? Whatever happens, we're going to get through this. Tell me what we need to do, how much money it's going to cost, and we'll find a way through this. And literally... I know that probably nine of the 10 of the institutional investors would have been literally losing the plot, going ballistic and just, you know, threatening, you know, seeing what, what they've got in the, in the contract, which means that they could potentially, you know, kind of utilize the advantage. And it's not, and I think that having those balanced behaviors is, is a massive thing. And if I'm, a, if I'm raising today, I would say, try and find a partner who does that. And I, you know, I'll be honest, I, a couple of times I've not got it right. Um, but that's one thing I'm acutely aware of today where I'm just always trying to make sure that I can be as supportive and as consistent behaviour-wise in, in, in both when they get great news, but also when I get not so great news. But I do think with VCs, I think a red flag for a VC is when, you know, a founder, because I'm normally acting for the founders, comes to me and says, I found a VC. The next line is, they're not like other VCs. And... <laughs> They, you know, they just, (laughs) yeah, and they really, they really love us and agree with everything we say. And I sort of think if at the start of the relationship, you're not being honest enough to like challenge and push back on stuff, even like on valuation or whatever it is that you might, they're the ones that six months later, I'm being called by the founder saying they're shouting at me in meetings and, you know, getting up in my face and I hate them. How do I get rid of them? Want to recut the deal, et cetera. Yeah. See it it time and time again. And it's difficult. And I think, you know, again, the owners also come back to the founders sometimes. And I just, I only have, what I have several things to say to the founders, but one of the biggest things I say to all of them, I say, look, I'm good with whatever happens if it's cataclysmic or if it's brilliant. The only thing I ask for is no surprises, yeah? So if something's really not going very well, just come and talk Tell to me and we'll sort it yeah. out. It's when I find out through somebody else or literally at the 11th hour when it is there a problem, that's the only time I might get a bit agitated and go, 
okay, we should discuss this earlier. That's the only bit. So, you know, founder has responsibility as well in that in that equation. Yeah, I think you said some interesting things there. You, you, you know, to approach you, come with your best, clearest message first because you want to evaluate it quickly. And then you, if you say, you, you don't want them coming back saying, oh, I forgot to tell you something. It's like, well, tell me it now, you know, and I'll say yes or no. I don't have time to spend my life picking up the stones again sort of thing, you know. And I think I think that... Loving people when they're in the bad times. I mean, I think that's a really important job. It was actually a piece of advice given to my dad when we, we started a hedge fund and someone said to him, oh, with people running in the city, you got to love them when it's bad, when the when the times are tough. That's what they need. Yeah. And they yeah. say the same, you know, it's, they're all similar, aren't they? When that, when that business is going really badly, for someone with a bit of wisdom and you, know, you don't have any, but you know, or maybe you do, you know, gray hair, you know, it's I'm like- I'm pretty old. Yeah, I've, been yeah. through the, I've been around the block a few times now. No, yeah. but for someone to come along and say, yeah. we'll get through this, you know, it's, it's, there are, there are problems that you can't solve, but you know, not many of them in business. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's going to be through pretty cat. You've got to sort of something massive has got to happen that's sort of, you know, like, you know, they make your ingredient illegal or something yeah. and you're like, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, we're fucking, we're stuck now, you know. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. Is there anything that you think is bullshit in business? God, where'd you start? Um, two main things, and I mentioned one earlier. For me at the moment, bullshit in business, just ridiculous valuations are driving me mad. I'm still seeing it the whole time now. Typically, a lot of these people will go to the one of the crowd platforms to try and do it as well. It's just people who just, you know, and businesses like naught to maybe 2 million, I get aggressive valuations there because actually you're kind of still investing at a level where there's a lot of future potential um, and particularly those, those ones that are promising. But I see businesses at 5, 10 million raising off eight to 15 times revenue. And I'm going, you got to be absolutely mad. Oh no, but this is the biggest growth area. This is going to become the next big channel. And you know, to be fair, they're convincing investors, but I would say that every one of let's just say I've seen a hundred of those over the last few years. I would say at least seventy of those are having to basically manage very disappointing investors, or else even worse, are trying to manage down rounds. I'm seeing a lot of down rounds at the moment, and unfortunately, the wheels come off at some points. So you've got to be careful. To, and again, it's all for me. Don't be greedy. You don't need to be greedy. A VC I know, I remember him explaining years back to me, valuation doesn't matter that much. And I was like, what do you mean valuation doesn't matter that much to a VC? And he said, well, you know, we'll say there's a fund with 10, 10 investments in it, you know, four will fail, two might do okay, two might do a bit better, but one, hopefully, it's like the music industry again, one will be a hit. And that will be such a big hit, you yeah. know, 100x. It means the valuation doesn't matter that exactly. much. Exactly. Everybody wants that unicorn, right? Yeah. And, I think, and do you know what? I don't want that unicorn. It sounds really weird, like... I invest with some other people and I've also been offered to get involved in stuff where people literally want to go for that. They want that. I mean, to be fair, you've been involved in some businesses that have done pretty well, man. I have, yeah. And I'm, I've been very lucky on that. But if you ask me today, I'm more interested in stuff that goes naught to 100 million and that's me done. I'm happy and, and done with that because it, I just find that space more exciting. I mean, I'm amazed you go up to 100 million. I mean, it's when you've got the board and everyone's, you know, it's just... Yeah, sort of, sort it's just, becomes... I the unicorn thing is just different because it's just like this high-octane models where there's just money being thrown. It's just, and don't get me wrong, I, I massively admire people to do it, but that's not my space. I'm like, if you said there's a there's a low, medium or high road, I'm the medium road investor. I'm like, person, don't go and spend 10 million pounds on marketing campaign. I'll give you half a million, run it in a region, show me it works, and then I'll give you the money then to spend on it more. And I build build it in a much more logical... And, and What would Vitacoga be worth now? Is that worth billions? 
Um, so it's actually, I mean, to be fair, yeah, it's, I mean, you can see it's public domain now. So if I looked at the valuation this morning, it was 1.01 billion today. Wow. So, but, but trading at around about two, two and a half times revenue. So sensible, right? So valuations is one of the bullshit things. What's the other? Uh, so there were two. The other one for me is greenwashing. I, again, you know, as you get a little bit old, you get a little bit uh, cynical on certain things. I just, I've just watched over the last three years, so many companies just try and jump on the eco, need to be more ethical, sustainable be cool, business. Anybody? I'm going to come on to that second. Yeah, I'm going to come on to that second and just jump onto it because, oh, we'll get a better valuation for the business or, you know, you know, it's what shareholders need, et cetera. And I'm just seeing a lot of greenwashing going on between how people are positioning yourself, actually truly how environmental how much adverse impact they're having on, on the environment and also some of the numbers that are coming out in terms of, you know, the carbon emissions and stuff like that and also the targets, they're not going to get hit and it, it's madness. And I think for me, two years ago, there was a benchmark in the industry which is called B Corp, which if you wanted to be a business that is balanced purpose with profit and be a business that's all about doing good, B Corp was absolutely that, that, that accreditation um, that everybody aspired to and it was very difficult to get to. The issue you have today, and I think this is where B Corp needs to be really careful, is that there are so many businesses that I don't believe should be accredited that have been accredited mm. because they know how to work the scoring system. They know what difference to make, changes to make in the articles and stuff like that to do that. And there are people you can hire to tell you and exactly you what exactly to do to get they, it. I don't know what it is now, but it used to be the Magic 80, used to be the score you used to have to yeah. get. It might even still be that 80 score. And I'm just seeing it the whole time. And I think the whole thing's going to come falling down because you know, you're seeing some pretty... I would call sustainable environmentally and corporate socially ugly companies getting accreditation when they know where they shouldn't, but they know how to work the system. And I think B Corp have really got to sit back and go, right, let's look at our criteria because it should be very, very difficult to get that B Corp and maintain that B Corp accreditation because otherwise it's going to lose credibility. And I think it's really important because it's the one metric which covers so many different things you know, across you know, morals, values, social, environmental, economic conditions or factors. And it's such a great tool, but they need to basically take a look again and just really now refine down some of the, some of the, some of the, some of the, some of the assessment and measurement criteria. It's almost someone needs to stop looking at it as a numbers thing and step back and look yeah, at it. Because otherwise everybody's just getting it. It's like it's literally it'll be like caught, a, yeah, rubber stamp. Corp, yeah. And of course we all don't be wrong, we all want as many companies on there, but I think they need to set the bar higher on it. Okay, okay. So, Giles, this is called the five second rules. We're going to do quick questions, five to 10 seconds uh, per answer, just to get to know you a little better. DQ the music. Okay, ready? What was your first job? United Biscuits sales repping. Were you really? KP McVitie's, that is, if people don't know what United Biscuits are. Um, what was your worst job? Worst job? Probably working in my holidays in the next retail store standing on my feet all day bored to death badly paid too I couldn't believe what they get paid back yeah bored favourite subject at school Uh, design technology I always kind of like to be creative and make things and do bits and pieces what did you want to be when you grew up I'm doing what I'm doing now do you know I always wanted to work in food and drink my university degree was in food and drink um, in fact, I'm lying a little bit there, actually. The one bit I didn't want to be when I grew up, I always said I was never going to be in sales. I wanted to be a marketer. I wanted to be creative. I, wanted, you know, I was a brand manager at one point. And then at, at Coca-Cola, they made me go and do a sales role. And I literally went through through gritted teeth and I fell in love with it. And I did literally 70% of what I've done has been selling and being in commercial roles ever since. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, what did your parents want you to be? Uh, they basically, no disrespect, but kind of 
lawyer accountant. Yes. 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 All that sort of stuff. We're all happy with that. Yeah. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, so I hate karaoke, so therefore my go-to karaoke song is one called Tequila. I don't know if you know Tequila. Guess how many words in it? One word. Tequila. That's it. It's a very easy That's one to do. That's a good one to That's do. That's a good one to do. So I, I need that off somebody smart. else, actually. That's I need that off somebody else. Wow, that's brilliant. Um, office dogs, business or bullshit? Uh, definitely business. Excellent. Where is he? Where is he? We have one around here somewhere, don't we? Yeah. Have you ever been fired? No, not yet. Still time. Still time. Yeah. Maybe. Don't know. Don't know. We see, I'm actually unemployable today. I work, you know, I, I don't work for anybody as such. I do a little bit on the non-exec stuff, but no, I've, I've never been fired. But you, n- you never know. And what's your vice? I've got a couple of vices. Um, <laughs> you can actually tell us or leave us to guess. <laughs> yeah. You can guess. I don't know. I don't know. Vice quite is... healthy, so maybe sports. No. That's a, that's like you know. What's your vice? I'm just too. Do you want my, do you want my good vice or my bad vice? Which one? No, I, I, Both I, I, of them. I, I guess my bad vice is just. I just. I'm always in a rush. I always want to get things done. I've just got to realise that not everybody's in the same mood mm. as me sometimes. I just need to be more patient with certain things. And so, I'm, like, if somebody comes in and starts presenting a 100-page deck to me, I'll be like, Oh, man. Right, I just need to know five things. Just tell me five things. I just want to know, and then I'll look at it later. I just can't. I'm not. But I just just need headlines. I, I, yeah, that sounds. Uh, yeah, sounds like you might be on the ADHD's. Uh, yeah, uh, probably. Uh, yeah, right on. Right on the edge. Just for my new hip hop crew, which is the ADHD's, which I'm yeah. totally pleased with. You know. <laughs> <laughs> my special skill will definitely be if I speak to other people. Is that. I can kind of my mind works very quickly and I can move very quickly to what I think we need to get to so like what people procrastinate for an hour but so I'll be you like five ten minutes I can be like boom right let's do x y and z pretty good in giving direction on that sort of thing I'm led to believe anyway very good uh, there we go Yeah, I guess if people want to find you, where do yeah. they go? Yeah, so if you want to get a hold of me, uh, you'll see me as Giles Brook and LinkedIn, or else on uh, Instagram, it's whitespace and underscore Giles, G-I-L-E-S. And that's it simply. Where does the whitespace name come from? Whitespace was a business that I originally had that um, was just all about every category has a white space, i.e. an opportunity for a brand to go in there. And I think, I, I personally also believe every single category, there's an opportunity for a challenger brand. So white space is obviously untapped space, basically. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Charles. You were wonderful. Pippa, D, our producer, and my dog, Romeo. And we'll be back with BWB Extra on Thursday. And until then, it's ciao.